And good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. Galatians chapter 4 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one there from the pew rack in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the same passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4, a passage that Tim Keller describes as explosive. John Stott recognizes it as, quote, the most difficult passage in the epistle to the Galatians. In this section, Paul reaches back to a classic and foundational Old Testament story, a story about Abraham and his two wives, Sarah and Hagar, and the two sons that were produced from those two, two unions, Isaac and Ishmael. We spent some time a couple of weeks ago seeking to become familiar with that story so that we can understand and feel the force of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. Last week, in particular, we saw Paul's unique interpretation or better yet, application of that story of Abraham, his two wives and his two sons, into the lives of the Galatian believers. Paul uses the story allegorically. He uses it allegorically without denying its historicity. He sees in that story an important picture of what is going on with the Galatians as they are being swayed by the false gospel of the Judaizers. We were left last week with an important question at the end of the day. Are you a child of the promise or a child of the flesh? Are you a child of the promise or a child of the flesh? And one of the ways we can determine whether we are a child of the promise or a child of the flesh is by seeking to understand upon what we are relying for our right standing before God, for our relationship with God. If we are relying on ourselves, if we are relying on our works, our righteousness, our effort at keeping the law, then we are probably like Hagar and Ishmael, children of the flesh. But if we are relying upon him, if we are relying upon his grace and his mercy and his work on the cross, then we are like Sarah and Isaac, a child of the promise. And one of the ways I told you last week that you can help to determine upon what you are relying is by how you tell your story. If you give your testimony and you talk about your pre-conversion experience, about your life of sin and rebellion against God, and then you get to your conversion experience and you say, but I, you're probably more like Ishmael than you are like Isaac. But if you get to that part of your story and you say, but God, but God reached down and rescued me. But God gave me a new heart. But God redeemed me and justified me by his grace. If it goes, but God, then you probably are more like Isaac and a child of the promise. So maybe one lesson is let's be careful how we tell our story because it may reveal, it may reveal something deep in our hearts that may be problematic. Well, this week in the text in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to see another way to tell if you are a child of the promise or a child of the flesh. Paul will play on the idea of the trouble that Ishmael made for Isaac when Isaac was very small. He'll play on that idea to talk about the reality of persecution in the life of these early believers. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about today is about persecution, about first century persecution and about 21st century persecution. And one of the ways we can tell if we are a child of the promise or a child of the flesh has to do with our view of persecution and our response to persecution. So we're going to read together today Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. The bulk of our study will start in, chapter, uh, in verse 28. 
28 to 31 is really where our focus will be today, but I want you to hear it all together because it really is one passage. This is what God's Word says, starting in Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. After a week of vacation Bible school, and it is clear that our strength, our ability, and our energy is finite and limited. So we pray for your help. We pray that you will renew our strength and restore our energy so that we may spend and be spent for the sake of your kingdom today. We trust what your word says in Isaiah chapter 40 that you are the one who does not become weary or tired and that you are the one who gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might you increase power. We know that youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. But those who wait for you, those who trust and hope in you will gain new strength. We believe the promise that they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And Father, we want to see that today. I want to experience that today. Even in the preaching of your word, I want to experience that supernatural energy, that that strength and power that comes only from you. Not from coffee and not from food, but from the spirit who empowers and enables the proclamation of your word. Father, I I want to fly today by your strength with your wings so that you get glory in the midst of our weaknesses. So help us today. Use us today for your kingdom's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we're going we're gonna to start our study today really in verse 28. Verse 28 is a great reminder to the Galatian believers of who they really are. Look what he says in verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. To use Paul's imagery throughout this portion, the Judaizers... The Judaizers want to turn the Galatians into children of the flesh. 
They have come to town with a gospel that's really not a gospel, a gospel of justification by their own works, justification by works of the law. They want to turn the Galatian believers into children of flesh. They want to turn them into slaves with Ishmael and his mother Hagar. But Paul says to the church there, that's not who you are. You are children of promise like Isaac. In fact, he's done this multiple times in Galatians already. Multiple times he's already taken them back to their conversion experience and reminded them of how they were transformed. And he's told them that you were not transformed by works of the law, but by faith. By the grace of God you were transformed. In fact, flip back in your Bibles to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And look at verses 1 to 5. This is just one occasion where Paul already has reminded them of who they really are. And I want us to be reminded of who we really are if we are in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, start in verse 1. There's a a tone to this that we want to get right, but let's remember he's reminding them who they are. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously hearing with faith, right? And he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, overwhelmingly, is by hearing with faith. When Paul came to town, he preached to them Jesus Christ and him crucified, and they believed the message, and their lives were transformed. That's how the conversion came, by faith and not by works. And he is reminding them, you guys are children of promise, not children of flesh. You are children of a miracle that can only come from God, not children of some human effort that can conjure up something. He reminds these people that they are children of the promise, not children of the flesh. Products of a miracle that can only come from the Lord himself and not the products of human ingenuity, effort, or ability. And I want to remind you today, if you are in Christ, you are a child of promise, not a child of the flesh. You are a child by the miracle of God and God alone, not by the product of something that man can conjure up by his own effort. If you are in Christ, if you're a new creature, God did that. You did not. He did it. You are a child of promise. Look at verse 29. He goes on, develops his argument. He says, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. Here, Paul plays on a particular part of that Old Testament narrative we studied a couple weeks ago. A particular part that takes place at the celebration of the weaning of Isaac. He would have been about three years old when this took place, and it would have been this huge celebration. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 21. So if you want to turn there, you can turn to Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 will be on the board for you to follow along if you can't get there fast enough. This is what God's word says, Genesis chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. 
as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Look at verse 8 closely. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. That's the, that's the verse that Paul is playing on in Galatians chapter 4. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, who was older than Isaac, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. He's mocking Isaac. Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And therefore, she, that is Sarah, said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. You see it there? That's the scene, That's the scene that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 4, 29, when he says, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, and so it is now also. In Paul's allegorical application of the text, he sees Ishmael mocking Isaac as the picture of the Jewish persecution of the church. He sees that scene in Genesis 21 as a picture of the Jewish persecution of the church in the first century, at the earliest days of the church. Now I want you to hang on to that idea of persecution. We're going to come back to that in a little while when we get to the application. Look at verse 30. Galatians 4, 30. It says, but what does the scripture say? Quote, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Here, Paul uses Sarah's response to Ishmael's mocking of Isaac by kicking her out of the house. That, that's Sarah's response. If that's the way it's going to go, if the son of the bondwoman is going to mock my son, she's gone. Out of the house with her. That son of the flesh will not be an heir with my son, son of the promise. That's what Sarah says. And it seems, in the context of Galatians chapter 4, that part of what Paul is teaching here is that he's implying that the Galatians should give the Judaizers the boot. That the Judaizers are like Hagar and Ishmael and they should be kicked out of the house. The Judaizers are leading the people in Galatia astray. They are leading them away from the one true gospel to a message that cannot save them. And Paul says, get them out of the house. And they are treating Paul, the messenger of the good news, as an enemy rather than a servant and a friend. And so it seems like part of what he's doing by quoting Sarah here, and notice, notice the way he talks about it. He doesn't say, then Sarah said, get the slave out of the house. He says, the scripture says. The scripture says, remove the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So it seems like part of what Paul is implying here is that the Galatian church, for the sake of their souls, should kick the Judaizers out of the place because, because of the trouble they are causing in their perversion of the gospel. But probably the bigger point is not to kick the Judaizers out. It is to say that there is only one heir There is only one heir to the covenant promises. 
There's not multiple heirs. It's not as though uh, Ishmael will receive uh, an inheritance of the covenant promises and Isaac will receive uh, a share of the inheritance of the covenant promises. No. Scripture makes clear that it is through Isaac your descendants shall be named. It is through Isaac that the covenant promises will be passed on from generation to generation. There is only one heir and it is through Isaac that the covenant promises will pass on. Not through Isaac and also Ishmael. And this is an important point for us because there is only one way to the Father. And that's the issue at stake in Galatia is the gospel message. He, he doesn't want them to have an idea that, oh yeah, you can get to the Father through your works of the law. Or you can get to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Or you can get to the Father by any other sincere route that you might want to take. No, Paul is rightly arguing that there is only one way to the Father. There is only one way to have a right relationship with God, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one road that leads to the presence of God, and it is faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite preachers says, when we preach the gospel message, we need to be clear that there is only one door. There is only one door that leads to heaven. And we also need to be clear that that one door is an open door. That the one exclusive way to have a right relationship with Almighty God is through Jesus Christ. And anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. There is one door and the one door is an open door. And so I want to invite you to walk through the open door to salvation through Jesus Christ. I want to be clear that our God is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely righteous and perfectly just and he must punish sin. I want to be clear about a high view of God and his righteousness. And I want to be clear about a low view of man, that we are sinful, 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 and we deserve only condemnation from God. We deserve only damnation from God. We deserve only judgment from him. Because of our sin, we are separated from him. I want to be clear about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And I want to be abundantly clear about the glories of Jesus Christ. That he is God in the flesh and he came to live among us. And he lived a perfect life. He kept the law perfectly as an example for us and as active righteousness for us. And he died on the cross in our place as our substitute. He didn't deserve to die because he had no sin. And yet he graciously took our sin upon himself and suffered the punishment, the condemnation, the damnation that you and I deserve. He took it for us and he died in our place. And then they buried him. And on the third day, he rose in victory over sin. He rose in victory over death. He rose in victory over hell. And he offers us victory. And so we respond. We respond to all of this good news by repenting of our sins, by turning away from sin and walking toward him in faithfulness and by trusting, depending, relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's how you get through the open door. The one door is an open door. So repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. That's my invitation to you today. Verse 31. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. If we are in Christ, if we have walked through the open door, the one door, by, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not children of a bondwoman, but children of the free woman. This is yet another reminder of who these people are in Galatia by the grace of God. And this is why we need to wrestle with our own identity, like we talked about last week. Are you 
a child of promise or are you a child of flesh? Are you a miracle baby birthed from above? Do you notice that he changed the language a little bit in verse 29? Look at it in verse 29. He says, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. He's been calling Isaac the son of the promise, but here he says he's the son of the spirit. We're talking about that spiritual birth that comes from above that Jesus explains in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus when he comes to him by night. You need to be born again. What? Born again? I'm a grown man. Am I going to crawl back in my mother's womb? No, no, no. You need to be born from above, born by the Spirit, right? That's what he's talking about here. And if you are in Christ, you are a miracle baby born of the Spirit, not by human ingenuity or effort, but by the grace of God and for the glory of God. So let's go back a little bit and let's talk some about the persecution that Paul is talking about in this passage. And let's, let's observe that the earliest persecution, first century persecution of the church, was primarily from the synagogue. It was from the Jewish leadership that Paul identifies as Ishmael in this passage. The Jewish leadership causing trouble for the followers of Jesus Christ that Paul identifies as Isaac here. Let's observe that first century persecution was primarily from the synagogue. And Paul knew this persecution better than anyone else on the planet at that time. You know why? Because he had been on both sides of the table. He had been on the side of the Jewish leadership persecuting the, the early church, right? You know about Paul the persecutor, don't you? If you don't, you should read Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. In chapter 7... Stephen gets stoned to death. Why? Because Stephen was breaking the law? Because Stephen robbed a bank or killed somebody? No. Why does Stephen get stoned to death? Because he was preaching about Jesus Christ. They killed him for it. And you know who was standing there giving hearty approval to the whole matter and holding the coats of those who threw the stones? Paul. He was right there as a young man giving his approval to all of that persecution of the early church. In chapter 8, he gets directly involved in the persecution of the early church, traveling around, causing trouble, persecuting the way, the followers of Jesus, unto death. In fact, in fact, the persecution rises so much after Stephen's stoning under the hands of Paul that the church is scattered all over from Jerusalem. They can't even, can't, Christians can't even stay in Jerusalem because of all the heat they are getting from Paul in particular, and so they scatter all over the known world and they go about preaching the gospel. And then in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus. What's his plan when he gets to Damascus? Arrest the Christians. Anybody who's following Jesus and trying to get others to follow Jesus, he's going to arrest them. He's probably going to see to it that they die. That's what he was on his way there to do. And he was fully endorsed by the Jewish leadership. He had letters from the chief priests. He had permission to go to Damascus and cause this kind of trouble. Paul knew about first century persecution that came from the synagogue because it happened under his watch. It happened by his hand. And he never forgot about this. In, in multiple letters to the early church after his conversion, he talks about his past life as a persecutor of the church. With shame, he talks about how he used to persecute the church. Paul knew about first century persecution from the synagogue because he was a part of it. And then he knew about it because he received it. 
Paul was the one dishing it out in his early days, and he was the one getting it in his latter days. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It'll be on the board. It's a long passage that you're probably familiar with. But I want you to notice here, as Paul goes through the laundry list of his sufferings, the laundry list of his persecutions, how often it happens under the hands of the Jews. Not exclusively. I didn't say that all persecution of the early church came from the synagogue, but primarily it came from the synagogue, especially in the earliest days. And this is what he talks about. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I'm just going to stop there and tell you that that is crazy. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. I read a scholar one time that says Paul's back would have looked like hamburger meat just ripped to shreds and healed back over and ripped to shreds and healed back over. Five times from the Jews, 39 lashes. Most people would not have survived one time. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That happened at the hands of Jewish leaders. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. My countrymen, the fellow Jews, dangers from the Gentiles. So it wasn't just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. This is is just one place where Paul outlines specifically that much of the persecution that he endured as a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ came from the synagogue. It came from the Jewish leaders. Much, if not most, of the persecution Paul faced was from the Jewish leadership. Now, much, if not most, of the persecution the early church faced was also from the Jewish leadership. And I want to be very careful in talking about this. I don't want to come off as anti-Semitic. I don't want to, I want, I don't want to talk about this and, and, and you walk away with some kind of hatred of Jewish people. That's not the point of this talk. The point of telling you this is to be truthful. That that is what the situation was in the first century, in the earliest days of the church. And to be faithful to this text in Galatians because that is exactly the picture that Paul is painting here in Galatians. Truthful about the history and faithful to the text is why I want to say this. If you walk away with some kind of animosity and hatred toward Jewish people, you've got it wrong because it's important to recognize that such is not the case today. Most of the persecution that comes to the church in the 21st century has nothing to do with the synagogue. Has nothing to do with the Jews. You you won't hear a lot of Christians around the globe today saying, I'm getting heat from my Jewish neighbor. That's just not the case. There is very little persecution of the church today by the Jews. But in the first century, it was a different picture. So, number one, in the first century, persecution was primarily from the synagogue. 
We don't live in the first century. We live in the 21st century. And the reality is, in the 21st century, persecution globally is primarily from the mosque. From Muslim leadership, which claims proudly its physical lineage from Ishmael. Ties directly to this text. Now, as much as I want to be careful not for you not to walk away with some kind of anti-Semitic attitude, I also don't want you to walk away with some uh, Islamophobic attitude in all of this. I'm simply trying to be faithful to what the reality is and faithful to the text, the point of the text. Genesis chapter 16, verse 12 says of Ishmael, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone. And everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. A friend of mine who lives in the neighborhood of the Middle East said, This is a perfect description of the political situation around me. His hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, no peace. And some of the persecution that comes from the mosque, from Muslim leadership, comes through governmental, systematic intolerance of any alternate view than Islam. This is is the situation in countries like Iran, where it is governmental, systematic intolerance of any other view than Islam. But some of the persecution comes in other ways, through grassroots anti-Christian education, anti-Christian propaganda, in the form of family enforcement, Community policing. It's not the government so much who is causing trouble for the Christian. It's the neighbor or the uncle who is causing trouble for the new believer in Jesus Christ. Countries where officially, systematically, governmentally, there is legal tolerance of other views. But there is functional, practical intolerance. Second point I want to make today is that in the 21st century, persecution is primarily from the mosque, not exclusively. Some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, what about communism? What about modern secularism and its persecution of Christians? That's real. It's out there, and it's a major problem. But primarily, persecution in the 21st century is coming from the mosque. I want to encourage you to check out a website sometime at opendoorsusa.org. I think it'll be on the screen. Open Doors is a ministry that deals with persecuted church all around the world. They do a great job of of giving us a high-altitude view of persecution in the 21st century. Voice of the Martyrs is another ministry that does a good job with this, but it seems like Voice of the Martyrs does a better job of giving us a close-up view. Voice of the Martyrs does a great job of giving us personal stories of persecution. Whereas Open Doors does a great job of giving us global statistics of persecution. And Open Doors says this, Christians remain one of the most persecuted religious groups in the world. While Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Christians throughout the world continue to risk imprisonment, loss of home and assets, torture, beheadings, rape, and even death as a result of their faith. You you may think living here in Harrisburg that persecution of Christians is not a problem. 
today, it's more of a problem today than it's ever been in the history of the world. I think, I think most, most scholars would argue that, that it's a bigger problem today than it's ever been in the history of the world. What you're talking about even recognizing Nero and other folks like that who persecuted Christians. There's more persecution going on right now around the globe, brothers and sister, sisters of ours facing trouble for their identification with Christ. It's happening right now, and I want you to have your eyes open to it today. Part of my goal today, we're talking about persecution in Galatians chapter 4. I want to talk to you about persecution around the globe. Look at these statistics from Open Doors. Every month, every month, 255 Christians are killed. Not, not in a in, uh, neighborhood scuffle, not as some kind of murder, but, but martyrdom. Killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their bold proclamation of the gospel. Every month, 104 of our brothers and sisters are abducted. Every month, 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage. Our sisters, 180 of them. Every month, 66 churches are attacked. 66 churches attacked. Gathered together like we are and attacked. Every month, 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. Every month. Let's let's boil that down to a day. Every day, eight of our brothers and sisters die. Three of our brothers and sisters are abducted today. Three of our brothers and sisters will be abducted. Six of our sisters will be raped. Two of our sister churches will be attacked. Five of our brothers and sisters will be detained without trial or imprisoned. This is like today. This is happening today. And we need to have our eyes open to it. Not to only be aware of what we experience in our culture of great freedom, but to, experience, to be aware of what our brothers and sisters are experiencing. Open Doors goes on and says that according to their research, 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the countries on the world watch list. That's one in 12. One of every 12 Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution in these 10 countries. Every year, Open Doors releases, releases this watch list of the 10 worst countries for Christians. Eight of those 10 countries. Eight of those 10 countries. Islamic oppression fuels the persecution there. Open Door says, Islamic oppression is one of the most widely recognized sources of persecution for Christians in the world today, and it continues to spread, aiming to bring many parts of the world under Sharia law. The movement, which often results in Islamic militancy and persecution of Christians, is expanding in Asia, in the Philippines, in Bangladesh, and in Indonesia, and in Africa, in Egypt, Nigeria, and Somalia in particular. This is real. Persecution is real. Persecution from the mosque is real. And I want to be honest with you about that, but I also want to be honest with you about how many Muslims are converting to faith in Jesus Christ. That is happening in some big ways, too, around the world. And we praise God for that. And we ask for more and more of that. And we ask for more and more workers to plant themselves in the midst 
in the neighborhood of the mosque to be as loud with the gospel as the mosque is with its call to prayer. So that the light will invade the darkness and the darkness will not overwhelm it. We pray for that, right? It's not so much what we're talking about today, but I can't talk about this without talking about that. So persecution is real. A few years ago, I read a book by a guy named Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. And in that book, he posed this incredible question. He says, with whom do you identify more, the persecuted or the persecutor? And I want us to wrestle with that question today. In light of the reality of persecution in the first century and the 21st century, I want us, by way of application, to wrestle with the question of, with whom do we identify more, the persecuted or the persecutor? Let me give you a sketch of the persecutor. He or she wants to stop the spread of the gospel. He wants to silence those who would testify to the saving power of Jesus Christ. The persecutor wants to restrict people's access to the word of God and to keep the followers of Jesus from gathering together for worship. That's what the persecutor wants to see happen. The persecuted, on the other hand, is bold in his proclamation of the gospel, is willing to take whatever trouble comes his way as a result of his bold proclamation of the gospel. The persecuted is hungry for the word of God and desperate to gather together with other believers. So the question that Ripken poses to us, people like us in America, who are not experiencing overt persecution, he says, which do you look more like? Do you look more like the persecutor or the persecuted? And it is a troubling question. Because so many of us are silent about Jesus, undisciplined in our intake of God's word. We are aloof from the gathering of the saints for worship. And therefore, we are arguably more like the persecutor than the persecuted. So very few of us are bold in our proclamation of the gospel like the persecuted, willing to take whatever trouble comes our way as a result of that proclamation. Very few of us are hungry for the word of God and desperate to gather together. We want to identify with the persecuted, right? We want to look more like them than the persecutors, don't we? So let's do that. Let's be bold in our proclamation. Let's be hungry for the word of God. Let's be desperate to gather together. Even if it doesn't bring immediate persecution in our context, let's look more like the persecuted than the persecutor. Nick Ripkin quotes one persecuted brother as saying, essentially to believers just like us, he quotes this brother as saying, you should not ever give up in your freedom what we would never give up in our persecution." Never give up in your freedom what they would never give up in their persecution. In other words, don't you dare in your freedom give up your proclamation of the gospel. In your freedom, don't you dare give up your study of the word of God. In your freedom, don't you dare give up your gathering together. Because even in their persecution, they won't give those things up. Let us identify with the persecuted church around the world by being bold in our witness, hungry for the word, and desperate to gather together for worship. Instead of looking more like the persecutor, silence the witness, restrict access, 
and shun the gathering. The question last week is, are you a child of the promise or a child of the flesh? The question this week is, are you more like the persecuted or the persecutor? We need to wrestle with these things. May God give us grace to repent where necessary. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to see ourselves rightly in light of your word, in light of your glory and grace. Help us to see clearly whether we are children of promise or children of flesh, children of spirit or children of effort, work. And help us to wrestle with this question that Ripken poses of with whom do we identify, the persecuted or the persecutor? We pray that you give us grace, give us repentance where it's necessary. Father, I pray in light of this text, in light of these truths, that you will guard us against the scheme of racism that comes from the enemy, that we would not walk away from this text with hatred or bigotry toward Jewish people or Muslim people, but that we would walk away with a love for you and a love for our brothers and a desperate desire to proclaim the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet, regardless of their background, regardless of their current position, that we would be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, and that in the preaching of the gospel, you would save souls. I pray particularly that you would save Muslims around the world today, As our brothers and sisters stand up to boldly proclaim the gospel message, I pray that you will remove hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. That you would make children of Isaac out of the children of Ishmael. For your glory and your glory alone. Help us as we respond to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.